Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. Here's where we're at in Sidur class. We're at a bit of a turning point. So this class, we turned this class into a class in theology, Jewish ideas about God. And we just finished before the break, probably a good three months plus, three to four months. Uh, it starts the last week of April, if you want to go back to that, if you're listening to the podcast, on history of ideas about God in the Bible. And we finished that. And now we're going to move on to um, ideas about God in rabbinic thinking. Just to review very briefly, we looked at ideas about God in the Bible. We looked at different strands of thinking. We ended up with um, God and the prophets, God who is in relationship with people. And because God is a personality, uh, sorry, God is depicted as a personality. Sometimes God is depicted as being angry when our behavior is bad, when we sin. God as loving, loving us. We saw that the meta- main metaphor of that was a spouse, but sometimes talk about as a parent and child. Um, we talked about God as a personality in Psalms. The person, individual feels connected to God, but sometimes feels abandoned by God. Uh, during high holidays, we talked about God as lawgiver and judge, not lawgiver, judge. Um, we looked at ideas about God as manifest in nature. Um, both in the power, awesomeness, and the scariness of nature, also in the beauty and harmony of nature, two different strands of thinking. Uh, we looked at um, God as present in history. We looked at the idea of that God can have a physical representation on earth, the malach, uh, an incarnation of divinity. We looked at um, the Kohanim's idea, the priest's idea that God is present in some places more than others, specifically in the Mishkan and the form of God's kavod. Um, and we looked at Deuteronomy's idea that God is actually very, very far away off in the Shamayim, and that the only thing we have to connect to God are God's words, which God has given to us, the Devarim. So we looked at all kinds of strands of thinking about how we encounter God in the world, how God is present in the world, what God is like. And we try to um, you know, track how some of those ideas filter into the Sidur. And again, part of the purpose behind this whole class is um, I know for some people it doesn't matter. They just show up, they say the words, they don't think about them, they don't care. Um, but for many of us, um, given that the Sidur is talking to God, about God, having some personal formulation that works for you of what God is like, how God operates in the world is useful. And so I think people construct a theology that makes sense to themselves in terms of davening. So we're trying to look at different thoughts in Jewish history um, that you can use as pieces to construct that theology. So we have pretty much looked at all kinds of strands in the Bible, and now we're moving on historically because my mind goes historically. I can't help but think of things that way. 
Um, and now we're going to talk about the rabbinic period, which means the period of the Mishnah, Talmud, and Midrashim, also called late antiquity, or the years roughly, oh, you know, maybe 200 to 800 or so of the common era. Michael, you waved me down. No, I was waving goodbye to somebody who oh, walked out. Goodbye to somebody. Okay, so up to the rabbinic period. Now, from here on in, until further notice, when I say the rabbis, I don't mean like Rabbi Klickfeld and Rabbi Schatz, okay? The rabbis means the rabbis of the classical period, which means the period of Mishnah, Talmud, and Midrashim. Mishnah is edited about the year 200 of the Common Era, the Talmud somewhere between, you know, 400, 500, 600, depending if you're talking about Jerusalem Talmud, Babylonian Talmud. All the classical Midrashim are written somewhere in that period, maybe up to the year seven or 800. So we're talking about, um, um, the rabbis as a, uh, class of people who existed in Eretz Israel and in Babylonia who, um, are in their writings, articulating various ideas about God. And what we'll see over the next few, I'm not sure how many weeks it's going to take, probably at least two months, two to three, um, we'll see how they use biblical roots. They sometimes transform biblical ideas, and they develop some ideas of their own. Okay? And... um that's what we're going to do. So I am going to share the screen. And for those of you who are listening to the podcast at home, there is a handout attached. So where we're going to start this week is with the rabbinic idea of God, the compassionate, that an uh, the essence or an essence of God's action in the world and presence in the world is that God is compassionate, and in particular, I, I may, maybe I should have specified this in the title, God is the compassionate one to the downtrodden. Okay, God is the defender and upholder of those who have no one else to defend and uphold them. Okay, so I label that as God the compassionate. Um, now, when I say that, you'll say, well, that's in the Bible already. Right, so I've cited a couple of sources here. All right, here's one which is, should be familiar to us from our daily davening. God is Osem Mishpat La Ashukim Noten Lechem La Reivim Adonai Matir Asurim. God does justice for the oppressed, gives bread to the hungry, and releases the bound, the prisoners. Halavai, that that would be true right now. Adonai pokeach ivrim, Adonai zokef kfufim, Adonai ohev tzadikim. Hashem gives sight to the blind, uh, straightens up the bent over, and loves the righteous. Adonai shomeret gerim, yatom ve'almanai ye'odeh v'derech v'sha'im ye'avet. Hashem protects the gerim, translated here as the strangers. We're gonna, we're gonna talk about that term in a moment. Um, God supports or encourages the orphan and the widow. So we have this threesome of Yatom, Almana, and Ger, the orphan, the widow, and the Ger. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Um, and uh, um, perverts or confounds or frustrates 
the path of the wicked. Where is that from? When do we say this? Um, it's in Psuke de Zimra. It's from the Psalm right after Ashrei. Ashrei Psalm 45. This is Psalm 146. Right. We go, we do the last six Psalms of the book of Psalms, 145 through, um, 150, meaning Ashrei through Hallelujah. So this is from the Psalm right after Ashrei. Or I picked a passage from Shmot, Exodus, Parshat Mishpatim about, uh, one, two, three weeks from now, three Shabbos from now. But I could have picked other passages from the Bible. Um, V'ger lo tone v'lo tilchatsenu ki gerim heitem b'eretzim You shall not oppress the ger, the stranger, and oppress him. For you were gerim in the lands of Egypt. Kol almanav yatom lo ta'anun. You shall not mistreat or oppress um, the orphan or the widow. So again, we have this threesome, and frequently in the Torah, they are mentioned together as the class of people who need God to defend them. Now let's just pause for a moment. Okay. And of course, I picked these two passages, one from Psalms, one from Exodus. You may think of other biblical passages. There are lots of other biblical passages where we, uh, what is expressed is this idea that God is the one who supports the downtrodden. I just want to pause for a moment so we understand these passages and ask, why is this always, or not always, commonly the threesome? The ger yatom va'almana, the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. Why do they need God to support and uphold them? Any thoughts on that? We don't have a lot of people listening, so the pressure's on. <laughs> they're vulnerable. Why? Yes. Why? So they're vulnerable, which means they need support. So God will give them support. How or why are they vulnerable? What makes them vulnerable? Probably, at least in two of the cases, I would say uh, uh, they don't have financial means in probably all three cases. Okay. So they don't have financial means. Um, what else do they not have? Support of others. So uh, which others specifically? Well, with, with an orphan, the parent, with a widow, the husband. Family. Right, family. So in a traditional Middle Eastern culture, and to understand this, we can look at, you know, Middle Eastern cultures today that are still more traditional than ours. The clan, which is something bigger than the family and smaller than a tribe, the extended family, is very, very important, provides support and actually provides protection. By the way, this world, ancient world, was a, a world where, you know, if you had a beef with someone, things didn't necessarily go to court with lawyers, right? They were worked out with justice between the clans. Traditional um, Arab culture today uh, in Israel uh and other places also is still very much clan based. They're clan elders. The clan elders get together. Your relatives defend you. Um, it's only less commonly that something would go to like police or court. So here it is. You're a widow or an orphan. You do not have the backing of your immediate family, which is the major protector. Okay. So these are people in the class that are particularly in need of 
support or, or are vulnerable. And I, I could have pushed that further. Vulnerable to what? It's vulnerable to exploitation. Okay. Um, and similarly, if we understand that, the gear fits because the gear is, although there are different definitions of what is a gear in ancient times, um, probably a gear in the Torah does not mean a convert, although if it means a convert, what I'm about to say fits just as well. But the ger is someone who is not originally part of Israel, who comes and lives among Israel. That means they are separated from their family of origin and very often their land of origin, place of origin. So they are someone who lives among the Israelites and does not have a family or clan structure to defend them. So these are the reason these three are commonly together, because it may seem to you, well, you know, orphan and widow, they're bereaved. I kind of get that. And why is a gear linked into that? Um, I think it's not necessarily about their emotional, psychological state and a need of comfort, although it could be that. Um, but I think it's primarily understood to be in terms of practicalities. As Michael says, these are a vulnerable, these are vulnerable classes of people. They do not have the normal structures of society to support them, um, in terms of justice and economics and, uh, thus are easily exploitable or easily fall into poverty. Just think of the story of like Ruth and Naomi. Okay. You know, they're, they're widows and they're, they're reduced to gleaning in the fields. They are the poor. Okay. Um, and, um, the Torah says, God in particular looks out for them. Now I know you take this idea for granted. It, it repeats many times in the Torah. So we have roots in the Torah of God in particular is compassionate towards the underdog, the oppressed, and cares for those who need caring. Again, I want, I brought the Psalm so that you see that it's not just the Torah's usually triumvirate of the Geriatom and Almanah, the stranger, the widow and the orphan, but it's also the um, setting the prisoners free and straightening up the bent over, um, and giving bread to the hungry and doing justice for the oppressed. Okay. So the rabbis, the sages, uh, by the way, the, uh, another synonym is in Hebrew, we, we call them chazal, which stands for our sages of blessed memory. And anytime we say chazal, again, we're not talking about some rabbi from the year 1920 who isn't alive anymore. We're talking about the sages of the era of the Mishnah, Talmud, and Midrash. So Chazal take this idea of God as being particularly compassionate to the downtrodden, and they, I will say, they expand this idea significantly. Um, and they do that by sometimes selecting passages from different places and putting them together. Um, the scholar, Ruven Kimmelman at Brandeis, calls this composition by juxtaposition. You take things from different places, you put them all together, all of a sudden it looks like something new. So here's one passage, which I'm sure is familiar to you. It is actually said, I think, traditionally, you know, Motzei Shabbos is part of the blessings um, that are said in traditional shuls, but you've probably seen it in other places. Um, from the Babylonian Talmud, Megillah 31a. Amar Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan says, 
Any place, which means in the Bible, you see a description of God's power or might, right next to it, you also see a description of God's anvitanut. Now here, anvitanut is translated as humility, which is a pretty good um literal translation, but when we read the passage, you'll see it doesn't really mean humility in our sense of the word, word humility. Okay, The word anav usually does mean humble, and Moshe is called the, the per, human being who is the most anav in human history. Okay, um, So that is what the word usually means, but we'll see that that's not exactly the meaning that fits here. Okay. Davar ze katuv This idea is written in the Torah, it is duplicated in the prophets and it is triplicated in the writings, meaning you find the, the, what Rabbi Yonachanan is saying. This is a core idea in the Bible. You find it everywhere in Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. Katuv Torah. Four. This is from Deuteronomy. Hashem, your God, is the God of all the gods and the ruler of all the rulers. And the next verse in Deuteronomy says right after it, Osem Mishpat Yatom Ve'almana. God executes justice for the widow and the orphan. In prophets, this is from Isaiah, it says, Thus says God, the high and mighty one who dwells on high, and the sentence immediately after that, it's actually not immediately after, it's actually in that verse. Um, etaka ushval ruach. I'm sorry that the Hebrew, uh, ended, but, um, uh, the English has the rest of it. Um, that I dwell with the one who is, has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble. That's not, that's not really the humble. It really means the lowly, the beaten down one and to revive the heart of the low ones. Right. And third, Example, this is from Ketuvim, from um, Psalms, right? Praise the one who rides in the clouds. Hashem is his name. And immediately after it, it says that God is Aviyatomim Vidayan Almonot. I love this phrase. The parent of the orphans and the adjudicator of four on behalf of widows. So in other words, this passage is saying, Rabbi Yonchanan is saying, Anywhere you look in the Bible, right? There are these places throughout the Bible where side by side, immediately where God's greatness, awesomeness, his power is described, God is also described as, and now I'm going to turn to you, even though we have a small group, so the pressure's on again. How would you transfer, how would you translate anvitanut? Because it really doesn't seem to me that humility in our common sense of the word humility, is a great translation. Humility doesn't capture it. Or what does this translation mean by the word of humility? What's the second aspect of God in all of these three quotes? The first aspect is God's power or might. And side by side with it, we find God's compassion for 
For the widow, orphan, and stranger. For the downtrodden. For the oppressed. Okay? Um, by the way, I want to point out, in the second one, prophets, it's not widow, orphan, and stranger. It's really just the oppressed, the beaten down. All right? In the first and third one, it is the widow. Right? So, basically, anvitanut here really means, I think, the sense of it is, God is with the humble. God associates God's self with the humble, the humble, the lowly. Again, it's really not humble in terms of modest. Aw, shucks. Who, me? That's not what we mean by humble. It means the vulnerable classes, okay? God cares about the oppressed, vulnerable classes, is what Rabbi Yochanan is saying. And he says, you find every place where you find God is powerful, right next to it you find don't just think God is high and mighty. God is high and mighty and powerful, but or and also preoccupied with care for justice for the most vulnerable. Right. These are actually two aspects of God. The same God who is up in the clouds in the heavens is the God who cares about the most vulnerable. I'm pausing. Terry. I'm sorry, I'm not seeing that phrase that you that which, you're using in this phrase? passage. Yeah, which phrase? Uh, regarding God. Okay. In in Hebrew here. Oh, in Hebrew. Kol makom makom sheata motzei. Do you see where I am? Yeah, 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 yeah. Kol makom sheata motzei gevurato shel hagadosh baruch hu. In any passage or place yeah, in yeah, the yeah, Bible. I, Hold on. Yeah. Where you find a description of the might or power of God, say you also find anvitanuto. This is anvitanuto. Okay, this that's is the word. I, I, yeah. I missed the word. Thank right. you. So this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the word anvitanuto, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is translated as humility. I'm going to say again, because anav usually means humble. But here it's clear that it does not mean God is saying, oh, shucks, who, me? It doesn't mean that kind of humility. It means God is invatanuto, locating right? God's care. Thank you. It's not anvatanuto. It's invatanuto. Thank right. you. Well, sorry. Um, in the Talmud, there are no vowels. So um, ah. our version is invatanuto. I don't actually know. And I haven't yeah. really dug into the word, by the way. And I haven't looked up, you know, any concordance of the, of the Talmud. Does Invitanud in other places mean, you know, being preoccupied with the needs of the humble as opposed to being humble to oneself? I don't know the answer to that. That would be a good question to dig into that. Um, I'm sure I'm not going to have the time to do that. Um, but here it means, uh, I will call it occupied with the Needs of the downtrodden and vulnerable for their defense and care. It goes a long <clears throat> phrase to translate invitanut, which I mispronounced as anvitanut. Okay. So again, you could say, well, so this just means it's a biblical idea and not a rabbinic idea. And I'm not saying it's not a biblical idea because we did see those antecedents and Rabbi Yochanan is quoting antecedents. So I'm not saying it's not a biblical idea. What I am saying is that Chazal, the sages, have a new emphasis on this idea and they have this new emphasis by putting together 
biblical passage from different places and saying, see, this is one whole entire theme. So I would argue this is rabbinic theology. I guess you could say it's the rabbi's interpretation of biblical theology. That would be a fair statement to make. Okay. And, okay, Terry, please. Okay. Okay. It's at the end of this passage in, in, in Hebrew and in English. Yeah. And it, it's not necessarily where you're going. Maybe you'll comment on another time, but why is it saying judge of widows? Oh, I don't think it. And I think, I don't think it means, um, God judges the widow. You're a good widow. You're a bad widow. Widow, you sinned. I think what it means is in this context, the one who makes sure that widows get adjudication. Again, we we talked earlier, I think you might have missed it, about how these are the biblical classes who don't have a family or a clan to defend them and thus might be taken advantage of. God makes sure that there is justice done with widows. Okay. Right. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I think that's the sense of it. You're correct. That's not typically you would say, oh, the Diana of this means you know, like in Israel today, like, oh, you're the judge of, of, of divorces or something like that or court cases. And it doesn't mean, I don't think it means executing judgment on the windows. It's making sure that widows have a judge so that they're treated fairly. That's my interpretation of it. Okay. Now this has a corollary, this idea of God's, I'm going to call it at essence or an essence of God is being compassionate towards the downtrodden. The corollary is, this has implications for expectations for you and me. On page three, Talmud, Babylonian Talmud, Shabbat 133b, Abaraita says, Ze'eliva an vehu. What's that line from? Ze'eliva an vehu. Ring a bell with anyone. Coming up soon. This Shabbos, what poem are we going to read this Shabbos? Az Yashir. Right. So this is from the Song at the Sea, which we say every morning. Okay. This is my God and I will praise him or glorify him. That's a line in the thing. Abba Shaul says, by the way, the uh, uh, Debbie answered that. She knew that off the top of her head because... um. Our daughter's bat mitzvah parsha is parshat bishalach, right? So Abba Shaul says, what does it mean? Ve'anvehu, uh, I will glorify him. That means I will be like him. You should be like him. And the English um, translation interpolates a thought to help you understand that, that anvehu, Abba Shaul may be making a midrashic linguistic pun. Anvehu is like anivahu, me and him. Right. Me and him are similar. This is God. And I'm, I'm with him. Abba Shul says, what does that mean? I'm with him. Heve domelo. You should be like God. Mahu chanun v'rachum. Afataheye chanun v'rachum. Just as God is compassionate and merciful. So you need to be compassionate or merciful. Okay. And this idea is, um, amplified a little more. In another passage from also from the Babylonian Talmud, said Rabbi Chama or Rabbi Hanina, what does it mean? Which literally means, 
Oops, sorry, my 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 ringer is on. I didn't realize that. Sorry, it's annoying. What does it mean? You should walk after God, right? Can you possibly walk after God? I mean, we would just say God doesn't walk, but he says, oh, there's another passage which says God is like a consuming fire. How could you walk right after a consuming fire? You'd burnt up. You'd be burnt up. It's obviously a metaphor. What does it mean to walk in God's ways? We take it for granted as a metaphor. So his question, of course, is probably rhetorical, meaning probably no one in the Talmud's time thought you should actually, you know, that God had a body and footsteps and you would walk after God, but he's asking rhetorically, what does it mean? To walk in or walk in the, um, what do we have translate here? Um, attributes. Thank you. Good word of God. What are those attributes? Just as God clothes the naked. What is the proof text for God clothing the naked? God made clothing for Adam and Eve and dressed them. You too should clothe the naked. Um, God visited the sick. What's the proof text? Parshat Fayera, God visiting Avraham after Avraham's circumcision. You too should visit the sick. God comforts mourners, as it says da, 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 in Genesis. God buried the dead, as it says, God buried Moses. You two bury the dead. Um, so although only the first of these four characteristics is, that is clothing the naked, is taking care of the downtrodden. Okay. Um, dressing the naked. The other three, we might say, well, are not exactly the same, visiting the sick and comforting the mourners and burying the dead. Um, we could have a discussion about that. Why did he link those things together? Um, but it's clear that from the fact that he includes the first one, dressing the naked, that what he is saying is these characteristics of God, of taking care for people, are meant to be emulated by humans. That's what the verse Achar Hashem Telechu means. You should follow God, walk after God means you should emulate God's attributes. Okay? And I want to argue that this is of one piece with what is said in the previous passage, Ze'eliva on Vehu, that basically sages are saying, and it's 847, so I'm going to wrap it all up, by juxtaposing Various verses from the Bible, they are saying, I don't want to say the essence of God, but in these passages, the essence of God or one essence of God is God takes care of those who need care, who may not have anyone else to take care of them. And this is a core I will call it theological idea or pronouncement about God. God is the one who is compassionate for those who especially need compassion. And this implies a demand on us. God is like this. Therefore, and now I'll speak fancy theological talk. There's a phrase in Latin, imitatio dei. We are supposed to imitate God. 
Therefore, we are supposed to imitate God in, which is said explicitly, right, by both the Baraita uh, that Abba Shaul says and, uh, the second passage, these last two passages, they both say explicitly, we are supposed to emulate God in this attribute of God specifically. God, the one who is compassionate to need to, um, to those who need compassion. This is a core aspect of how God operates in the world. And therefore, this needs to be an important aspect of how we operate in the world. We are supposed to be the ones who emulate this aspect of God, God, the compassionate one to those who are in particular need of compassion. Okay, I'm going to stop sharing so that I can see you all. Okay. And pause just to, for a minute or two, just to say, is there any question, comment? So again, I'm not making an argument that the sages thought of this idea, which was never present in the Bible, but I believe they are pulling different sources of this theme together. In, in fact, what they're doing is they are taking biblical antecedents to create a theology for themselves by knitting things from different places together. And they're saying, if we look at all of these places and put them together, we're seeing that there actually is a coherent idea about God spread and scattered throughout different passages of the Bible, that God is the compassionate one for those who are vulnerable and in need of compassion. It's my conclusion. Any thoughts or comments before we ring off? So what we're going to see the next few weeks is we're going to see other things like this. We're going to see where the rabbis took certain ideas from the Bible and link passages from the Bible and link them or juxtapose them to actually try to create a theology. Again, they were not creators of systematic theology. Um, they didn't say, here are principles about God. You know, Yigdal is like, Medieval and philosophic. Adon Olam also is medieval and philosophic. Here are the following principles about God. God is X, Y, Z. So the sages in general did not do that because they were not systematic philosophical thinkers. But this is sort of a partial step on the way to that by way of saying, hey, if we look at the Bible, we see there are certain themes that emerge, we put passages together and we see this is a major theme in the Bible about God. This is one of them. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at other major themes that the sages draw out by pulling out passages from the Bible. I think we'll stop for today. Be Torah, praise for peace, and uh, try to emulate, let's all try to emulate God by being a, a compassionate person, acting compassionately, towards those in a special need of compassion. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to TBA 
LA.org.